Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Ronai Vakan, and today I'm extremely delighted to host Dr. Jillian Schwedler to talk about her fascinating book, Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Descent. Dr. Jillian Schwedler is Professor of Political Science at the City University of New York's Hunter College and the Graduate Center, and non-resident senior fellow at the Crown Center for the Middle East at Brandeis University. Her books include the award-winning Fate in Moderation, Islamist Parties in Jordan and Yemen, which was published in 2006, and Policing and Prisons in the Middle East, which was co-authored with Laila Khalili in 2010. Her articles have appeared in numerous journals, including World Politics, Competitive Politics, Contention, and Social Movement Studies. Her newest book that we will be also talking today, Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent, was published by Stanford University Press in April 2022. Dr. Schwedler, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And I wonder if you'd like to begin the interview by saying a little bit about yourself, um, and yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I'm so happy to be here and have a chance to talk about my book with you. Um, yeah, so this, I'm, I'm originally from Detroit and I moved to New York uh, when I was 18 years old. And I didn't have any interest in the Middle East until I took a backpacking trip with a friend to Syria and Turkey in 1986. And I came back and from there, I just became increasingly interested and started studying Arabic. And it just kind of went from there. My particular interest in Jordan partly grew out of the first project, which was looking at these Islamic political groups that were turning themselves into political parties to compete in elections. And in the 90s, Jordan and Yemen were two of the cases that had those parties. So I really became interested in those kinds of issues and started studying Jordan And one of the things that struck me as I was doing that research, which was a completely different project from this one, was that there were so many protests in Jordan and no massacres of protesters. So it's a non-democratic country that just had hundreds and hundreds of protests. It reminded me almost of being in Washington, D.C. I was teaching at the University of Maryland at the time, where people look at protesters almost as a nuisance. They caused traffic, they were blockages, they were irritating, but nobody expected them to turn violent. And so it just became an interesting topic for me to think about uh, hundreds of non-violently repressed protests, but in a non-democratic context. Thank you so much. We can maybe start discussing about the book and talk about the dynamics of protest and non-violence maybe in that context more in detail. I found Protesting Jordan as a fascinating book, which makes strong theoretical interventions in the literature on state-making and state-maintaining, contentious politics, political geography, Jordanian politics, by drawing on decades-long empirical research. Um, And I don't think we have enough time to cover all the significant points that you raise in the book, but I would like to start with uh, the issue of territorial state-making in Transjordanian region. In your book, you suggest that even though the literature depicts the emergence of Jordanian state as a top-down process beginning in 1921, territorial state-making in Transjordanian region predates 1921 and actually emerges as a dialectical process, which is shaped by local and regional actors as well. Can you elaborate on this notion of dialectical process of state-making, as it is evident in the case of transformation of Transjordanian region into a territorial state? 
Thank you. Yes. So one of the reasons I start before the initial making of the Hashimate state, the 1920s period, or the post-World War I, post-Great Arab Revolt, which is where most of the narratives start, is because I discovered that a lot of the acts of protest and resistance that took place in that early state-making period were building on repertoires of resistance that dated at least 100 years earlier. And these are things like petitions complaining about how the Ottomans were taxing them, uh, rebellions of various sorts, occupying Ottoman government building, burning them down. But they were always a kind of negotiation. They weren't necessarily trying to drive the Ottomans out so much as complaining about the rate of taxation or that they were being treated unfairly vis-a-vis another town or another tribal confederation. And so the Ottomans really had to maneuver around the fact that there were lots of revolts that were taking place. And so those practices continue into the Hashimite state-making period. Now, people that talk about them often talk about the rebellions, and they rightfully acknowledge that these rebellions were all crushed, um, sometimes violently and primarily by the Royal Air Force, by the British. But what gets lost in that is the the outcome of the protests. You know, the protests are crushed, and so they, the revolts are crushed, so they seem to not accomplish anything. But in fact, they end up shaping the state that emerges in a number of ways. One way, which uh, is that the uh, Abdullah wants to establish his new capital, and he initially decides to settle in Salt. And when he arrives in Salt with his entourage, the Salties are wildly protesting in the street because they don't want him there. So he ends up settling in this small town, uh, Amman, which is nobody's seat of power, so he doesn't meet a local resistance in any sense. It's actually on Bani Sakhir land, so the Bani Sakhir invite him to settle on their land, which they think is advantageous to them, but not in their seat of power. And so in, in one way, the entire geography, the political geography, is a result of protests that the uh, Abdullah couldn't settle where he wanted to settle. There were so many acts of rebellion by the Bedouin that they could only be dealt with by hiring them to be the proto-army. So they end up prominent in the security services because of all their raids and rebellions. The Adwan uh, rebellion, which takes place in 1923, uh, is violently crushed and hundreds are killed by the British. But the that family, the Adwani family, end up within months being very close to the new emir and continue to be up through the through today. They end up holding prominent positions in government, etc. And so rather than seeing these acts of resistance that were crushed top down and then the state making proceeded as it might have anyways, the entire state making process is in part a response to where there's rebellion and resistance. And so those are the kind of dynamics that I'm bringing through. And there's many more examples in that. But just to give those three to give you a sense of uh, the ways in which they shape state making. And this is a theme that runs through the book is not to look at resistance or rebellion or protest only around the success-failure question. Did they accomplish what they set out to accomplish or not? That they can have all kinds of political effects beyond uh, their immediate demands. And so these crushed rebellions actually all had profound political effects. Thank you so much. Yeah, in the political science literature, we see all the criticism about Eurocentric notions of state making. And I feel like uh, this understanding of dialectical state making does not only have important implications on Jordan and understanding Jordan's formation, but beyond. So that's really important, I think. Next Uh, You zoom into Amman, where once was a periphery to the tribal East Bank area and later emerged as the capital city of Jordan in the 1920s. 
and you demonstrate how transformation of Amman from a small town to the capital city also uh, led to a shift in the landscape of protests towards Amman, uh, which interestingly in return also shaped the built environment of the city. Can you expand a bit more on this like intimate link between placemaking through built environment and claim making through protests that you elaborate in the context of emergence of our emergence of Amman in the 1920s and onwards? So Amman, as I said, was this small town. It had to stop on the Hejaz railway. And I could find no instances of protests or rebellions of any sort in Amman at all prior to Abdullah settling there. But now that this is going to be the new seat of power for the Hashemite state, it obviously quickly becomes a place for political claim making. You go to the seat of power and you assert claims there. So it establishes very quickly these repertoires of protest. And the one that takes place most immediately, it's a very small town and there's a main downtown area which, where the government buildings are located, um, Faisal, King Faisal Street and the Grand Husseini Mosque. And so people gather at the Grand Husseini Mosque nothing to do with Islam. It's merely a convenient place to gather that has an open plaza in front of it. And they would gather there and they would march down Faisal Street towards the municipal building and make their claims because that was a sort of symbolic and literal seat of power. And so that became a repertoire that everyone knew. As the city expanded and changed, the municipal complex eventually moved and they would march in a different direction. But these protests were very disruptive because with a few hundred people, you could shut down the entire capital. It was impossible to avoid them. It was impossible to conduct business when they could shut down the commercial center. As the city expands, as Amman grows, as it absorbs waves of Palestinian refugees and others, it grows exponentially from a few thousand to uh, I mean, today it's roughly 4 million if you look at Greater Amman in the course of a century. And that's an extraordinary growth, even by other urbanization standards. But one of the interesting things is that as it expands, those government offices move outside of that downtown area. The commercial powerhouse areas move out front of the outside of the downtown area. And so protests that continue in the downtown area following that same repertoire, it's the most known place to go for protests. Protests in the downtown area are no longer disruptive of anything, right? So as the built environment is expanded and uh, westward, actually in all directions, but many of the government buildings move into this West Amman, this becomes the elite upper class neighborhoods. Uh, protests do break out in other neighborhoods and we have new repertoires and new spaces for protests. But the built environment has rendered those downtown protests simply non-disruptive. And this defies a lot of the political science uh, events data analyses of protests, because often you'll look in those, you know, coding of all the events, and you'll see where are there spikes in the number of people in protests. And the assumption is, you know, three or 4,000 people in the city center is more disruptive than 20 people on a traffic circle out of the way. And in fact, I show that that's very much not the case. And so I have a number of instances, I you know, I don't want to go on too long, but a lot of examples that as the city has expanded, it's changed the dynamics for protest and the protesters have changed some of the dynamics of certain neighborhoods and the way those neighborhoods are policed and securitized. 
Thank you so much. It is fascinating to think about how power appropriates spaces and in return, uh, protesters claim their own spaces and um, disrupt this power dynamics within the built environment. Uh, my next question is about uh, chapter four. And on this chapter, although protests often connotate with disorder and instability, uh, throughout the book, you treat protests and state, make, state maintaining and making as co-constitutive processes. And especially in this chapter four called Jordanization, the, no the neoliberal state and the retreat and return of the protest, you focus on how austerity and pri privatization during the 1980s engendered the protest and how state responses to these protests shaped the state maintaining in Jordan. And I was wondering whether you can talk more about the key role of protest in shaping state maintaining stability and order. So I talked a bit about the 1920s and these rebellions and these groups that sort of were asserting claims and were angry at this new state making process often got pulled into the state. And we have these prominent families that were given land, government positions, places of connection to the regime. In Jordan, people talk about this as a social contract that there was this co-constitutive agreement that allowed the Hashimites to maintain control with British support, obviously, uh, in exchange for those kinds of positions. So if we fast forward through these waves of Palestinians arriving and the Black September violence of the Fedayeen in the late 60s in 1970, 1971, where quite literally the Jordanian army is fighting against these Palestinian militias for control of cities, after that period, those uh, early voices, which are often described as East Bankers, um, many of them tribal, but not all of them tribal, began, again, asserting claims, and they were loyal to the regime, and the regime began to respond to them. And one of the things it did is it created a welfare state that expanded employment for those communities. Palestinians, meanwhile, for the most part, are functioning in the private sector, right, because they're not incorporated into this. And in the 70s, the government begins this process of Jordanization, which has been widely written about, but whereby it provides more goods to this, um, this particular, these particular communities, but also begins developing a narrative of you know, Jordan as this Bedouin tribal heritage society that has this longstanding roots, it connects with the Great Arab Revolt, etc. And this broad definition does a couple of things. One, it marks the Palestinians as not quite Jordanian, even though they're citizens, you know, they, they were latecomers to this process. But it also is this expansive definition that allows the Hashimites to be included in this history because they're not actually from the Transjordanian area. They're from the Western Hejaz area and were defeated by the El Saud around the same time. And so, but the spotter expansive definition allows them to sort of connect to this romanticized past. But that romanticized past in real life, in real time, means the creation of a welfare state for a particular segment of the Jordanian community, these East Bank communities, at the expense of others. So as we move into the austerity period, austerity for the IMF means a number of things, largely cutting subsidies, reducing the bloated welfare state, privatization. Well, who's going to be suffering from these? These communities that are that feel they're owed these jobs, they're owed these privileges because they've been loyal to the regime, are now seeing that pulled out from under them, and they're increasingly angry about it. And so we see these explosive protests beginning in 1989, 
And again, if we see these protests, we talk about they, they failed, they didn't accomplish what they want, because of course the subsidies end up proceeding, the austerity measures proceed. But the government, the king, Hussein at this time, decides he's going to have to do something with all this anger and reintroduces the parliamentary electoral system and eventually redistricts. And this is a way of channeling that dissent into an institution that's more readily controllable than protests, by the way. But as we're moving through the period and privatization, you're seeing these these communities increasingly express frustration at the austerity, at the privatization. They're not against privatization per se, but they feel certain people are benefiting from it. Friends of the family or members of the extended family or Queen Rania's family are disproportionately uh, benefiting from it. And they're seeing these glitzy projects and mega projects, high, you know, resorts and high-rise hotels and foreign investment that they feel left out of. And so they're frustrated that what they talk about is this social contract that we're loyal to you, but you have to look after our community. They see that as being violated. And so the protests end up being a window into that uh, growing dissent from the former loyalist communities towards the king. And one of the things the book does, I think, that I haven't seen done so starkly elsewhere is to really carefully document the escalation in criticism of the king. It's illegal to criticize the king under multiple laws. But from 2010, you're seeing the hushed criticism of the king burst into the open, where there's open mocking of the king, the performance of variations on the corruption, Debka, where they chant all kinds of things against the king, against Queen Rania. Why do we have to buy your shoes and expensive clothing? Uh, the regime's corrupt, you know, uh, Abdullah II and his 40 thieves, Rifan Ali Baba and the 40 thieves. So you see this, this criticism that comes into view when you're looking at the protests and what people are saying at protests. Thank you very much. I think channeling the dissent in a way to reestablish political power is something that we are not discussing enough. And it was really interesting to read it in your case. Um, so my next question was about Arab uprising and Jordan. Uh, within that um, wave of uprisings happened in 2011 and onwards. So Arab uprisings led important scholarly debates on contentious politics in Middle East. However, I think another important theoretical intervention that protesting Jordan does is that it shows how, and I quote, not all protests are contentious or contentious in the same ways, end of the quote. Yet they still carry political effects. And you touched upon this point in your talk a little bit. But from this perspective, you bring the routine protests in the 2000s in the political landscape of Jordan uh, and unpack their political effects. And I was wondering whether you can elaborate on what you mean by routine protests and how they impact on workings of politics in theoretical level, as well as in the context of Jordan preceding and later uh, even shaping the Arab uprisings in the region. And how this might even change how we understand Arab uprisings. Great. So there's a lot there. Um, yeah, one of the things that struck me was attending protests in certain areas. Uh, and I have a, a chapter five deals with one specific location uh, in West Amman in the Rabia district or neighborhood at the Kaluti Mosque. And attending protests there over the years, I noticed that they were very routine. So the security would turn out in heavy force, but you would gather in a certain place and certain things would happen and Gradually, you'd move into the street, and then the police would line up and block the street. 
And this was ostensibly a march on the Israeli embassy, demanding for the end of the peace treaty, demanding the Israeli ambassador be sent out. And nobody thinks this is actually going to happen, right? There's not an expectation, and yet this was the demand. So in some of the conventional analyses, these would simply be I mean, kind of silly protests. They're sort of performative. They don't really do anything. You're pretending to march on the Israeli embassy, but you're not. They're not really contentious at all. I show in the book how even passers-by will walk by and pass the riot police and maybe stop and watch for a minute. The sidewalks are open, so the street's not really blocked. And I, as a foreign researcher, move in and out of the crowd. I can go right up to the riot police and take photographs, move behind them, and nobody bothers you at all. So this is a really, like, what is going on here? But there's this riot police confronting protesters. It's completely uncontentious. The atmosphere doesn't even feel tense in the least. So first is how do these routines get established? And then we'll talk about what kind of political work they do. In this case, they got established in 2000 when there was the second intifada started. And this mosque was relatively new, but there's a huge uh, field next to the Kaluti Mosque uh, and again, these have nothing to do with Islam. These are simply, it's a, a place to gather. And this neighborhood is where the Israeli embassy is. It's about a quarter mile away. You can't see it from this location. But initially, people were gathering there to march on the Israeli embassy, and there were thousands of people which show up at the site, and the government really did had to block the streets to prevent people from getting to the embassy. These con- continued uh, on Fridays for months and months and months. And they continued, in fact, for years. But the numbers diminished. And so... What became this performative routine march on the Israeli embassy was really building on the routine, the original efforts to march on the Israeli embassy. But they weren't actually trying to march on the Israeli embassy anymore because they didn't have the numbers to do it. So why do that? So here's where I'm trying to get beyond the success-failure question, because if it's a success-failure question, these are failed protests that they continue to do. But if you ask the question slightly differently and say, what kinds of political effects can we see from protests, despite the sec- in addition to the success-failure question? I'm not suggesting success-failure is irrelevant. Of course, it's incredibly relevant. And I show in the book some protests that do have profound successes, like in the 50s, preventing Jordan from joining the Baghdad Pact, um, the opening of the political system in 1989. So they do accomplish quite a bit. But in this case, there's no way they're going to accomplish the canceling of the peace treaty. And so I identified a number of things, uh, tangible political effects that you can see from these. Uh, one has a kind of performative aspect. And so if we go back to the protests at the Husseini Mosque, the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamist Action Front love to have protests down there. And they actually have parade guards, these guys with vests, they're yellow vests, they have the Muslim Brotherhood slogan or, or symbol on them, and they make sure everything goes smoothly. Shopkeepers don't even close their shops. In fact, they're getting extra traffic. They're probably, you know, maybe selling some extra water bottles or things like this. Um, and yet, you'll have the Muslim Brotherhood, the Sibyl newspaper, they'll photograph these. And when you photograph them from high on, you see thousands of people in the street and they look like wild protests. And so they'll publish these and talk about these. And it's kind of more for the, its own constituency to show that it can get people out and to show how important and contentious it is. But on the ground, they're not contentious at all. So similarly, at these Kaludi protests, the Islamists show up with their Islamic, with the Muslim Brotherhood green flags, and you have red flags for the Communist Party and other people are there. So these are very mixed crowds. Um, they'll show up with their flags and take a ton of photos and leave. 
and they leave before you even get close to encountering the riot police. And so one of the political effects of these routine protests is that they become kind of a photo op for groups like the Islamist Action Front or the Muslim Brotherhood to show their political relevance, to show how they're being contentious when in fact they're not being contentious. And so that's something that comes from these protests. What about the others? Also more of the leftist activists, um, other you know, uh, Palestinians that come out, families that, that want to go back to, what, to their home in Palestine. So there's a number of things talking to activists about what happens uh, and what, what they think is accomplishing. One is they're establishing and reestablishing this location as a place to go for protests against Israel. So when Israel inevitably has yet another campaign um, that results in you know hundreds if not thousands of Palestinian deaths, people in Jordan will know where to go. It is now the go-to place for any protest critical of Israel. And that's a kind of placemaking that is important. They want to keep that uh, going. Another political effect is um, uh, maintaining that space for protest, not just for people to know about it. So activists will tell me they're concerned if we stop protesting, the government shuts it down, it's going to be hard for us to come back. So as long as we stick to the routine and we're small in numbers, the government lets us do this, but we're going to continue to do this. It also keeps the issue in the public debate, right? We're voicing it. It'll get covered in the papers just fleetingly but to shows that there is this dissent. People haven't simply accepted the peace treaty. And so if you think about those kinds of issues and other issues, you can see the political effects of protests that might not result, might not be anything connected to it succeeding in canceling the peace treaty. And so I try to look at those, that, those kinds of themes and questions throughout all the protests I look at. Like what is being accomplished by this protest? Um, and of course, the social movements literature has long looked at the ways in which protests are also occasions for solidarity building, for people in the protests to build connections to each other. And so those kinds of issues also get woven into my discussion. Thank you so much. This is fascinating. And I think especially uh, the point about like claiming the space as a protest space and maintaining that place as a, a center for claim making definitely made me uh, think of istiklal in the case of Turkey as well. Um, so there are definitely a lot of connections that can be made between these spaces. Um, next, um, throughout protesting Jordan, you take the built environment and place making integral to state making protests as well as repression. And in this way, in addition to exploring uh, repressive tactics employed by the state, such as the use of legal provisions or co-optations, you also provide a broad list of spatial tactics that the Jordanian state has employed in the aftermath of Arab uprisings to contain protests. Can you talk um, a little bit more about the spatial techniques of repression and how they translate into built environment, as you observed in the wake of Arab uprisings in Jordan? So this initially, my attention to space in this way initially came from talking to a protester. And, you know, when you're doing interviews, you always ask, what am I missing? What should I be paying attention to? And one thing that a protester said to me was, the spaces for protests are disappearing. And I initially thought, like, what does that mean? Like, how does space disappear? But of course, I took it seriously. He was initially talking about at the fourth circle, which is where the office of the prime minister 
um, is located. So that becomes a place, a prominent place, the fourth circle for protests, because you can claim, make claims against the prime minister. That's not illegal. It's illegal to criticize the king. So it's always been the proxy. We'll criticize the prime minister, even though we know the king is making these decisions. And so this protester was talking about the fact that the fourth circle used to be a place where you could stop traffic in the city with a few dozen protesters weaving through the traffic and holding hand, and you could bring the city to a standstill, which was a very dramatic means of drawing attention to yourself, to your claims, etc. But as the government was trying to alleviate traffic along Zahran Street, which was notorious for traffic jams to get in and out of the, the downtown area, they created these underpasses at many of the traffic circles. And so the spaces that were disappearing initially had nothing to do with the government trying to disappear space as a protest, but simply this infrastructure rendered protests at the fourth circle less disruptive because the majority of the traffic was going through these underpasses and couldn't be disrupted easily and also couldn't even see the protest that was happening. Unless you were at the top of the circle making a turn, you didn't even know there was a protest happening. So that was the first impulse to think about space. But as you mentioned, I, ta- I document in in the period after the uprisings, the government really does introduce a number of techniques to try to uh, close down protest spaces. And one of the main techniques in that is to build fences and walls and render places inaccessible. So the fourth circle, after they did this renovation, at the top of the plaza, there's this beautiful circle. And in the middle was a pedestrian area with benches and some nice plants and a nice place for protesters to gather in the middle of the traffic circle. So after the uprising period, where there were lots of protests at that place, as as well as many other places across the country and in the city, uh, they put up a fence around the traffic circle and basically caged it in. So the pedestrian area was wiped away, the benches were gone, and they, they encircled it with a cage and they landscaped it. This also happened at the interior circle, um, Gamal Abdel Nasser circle, but it's called the interior circle because of its proximity to the Ministry of the Interior. This was a site of an encampment during the uprising period where they intended to create a Tahrir style, we're not going anywhere until we get reforms encampment. That encampment was violently dispersed um, after in the second day, but there were hundreds and at one point probably over a thousand people there. That traffic circle is now fenced in and landscaped. So that open plaza is gone. So we're seeing this in very many places. At the Kalutimas, that big field I mentioned where people would gather to march on the Israeli embassy, that now has a fence around it. And so I document a number of places where they're just simply trying to close down these spaces and render them inaccessible for protests through through a variety of uh, techniques such as these. Yeah, and I feel like, especially in the political science, when we talk about protests, we often talk about human aspect of coming together. While it is fascinating to think about build environment and non-human aspect of the protest as part of it, uh, obviously employed by the political power, but still. Um, lastly, protesting Jordan also offers a fascinating account of multi-scholar construction of state-making, claim-making, and place-making. In this way, the book treats local and transnational scales as co-constitutive of politics um, at national scale. And I was wondering whether you can expand on this point and tell us a bit more about what is the benefit of leveraging uh, these two scales in understanding of uh, politics in Jordan and in the Middle East. 
So the multi-scaler approach is a little different from some of the typical scale approaches. So typically a scale approach, which I do use in some places, which is you're zoomed in on one place. And as you zoom out, you lose the details of the local, but something broader comes into, into view, the, the governorate or the nation, or if you zoom out, the region comes into view. <clears throat> what a multi-scaler approach tries to do is not lose particular detail as you, you're shifting scales. And so we might look, for example, at how policing of protest is taking place in particular location, but then recognize also that that's those similar techniques are being used in other places in part because, for example, police forces train together. If you think of other things like foreign investment and privatization, these affect specific local places, neighborhoods get wiped away to build mega projects and protests around those mega projects, but those are also intimately connected to foreign flows of capital and foreign direct investment. And so it's trying to sort of wed those together and see how what happens in a very localized sense is shaping what can happen. Um, when protesters insist on protesting in certain places, it can have these broader effects. One of the most interesting examples, which comes from uh, a friend and colleague, Eliana, Eliana Abu Hamdi, who's an architect and urban planner at Syracuse University, she was interviewing one of the directors of this Abdali mega project, which is huge skyline skyscrapers, etc. And the 3D model that he had in their office, she notices there's a plaza on it, but that plaza doesn't actually exist in real life. And she asked, this is interesting. And he said, oh, we didn't build the plaza because we were concerned that people would protest there. So literally, the potential for protests shaped this project because they didn't want protests in this space. And so this is, a, this is something that's global in reach, this sort of privatized public spaces. So it's a public space, anyone can go in, but you have to pass through securitization. And as is true in the United States and in many parts of the world, uh, you don't have the right to protest in private spaces. You can protest on certain public spaces, but not in private spaces. And so by privatizing public spaces, you're rendering them by definition inaccessible for most forms of protest. And so I really trying to sort of see those connections. And that's not just a, about the Abdali neighborhood. It's about global flows. It's about trends in urban development and sort of draw these connections back and forth, but putting protests in dialogue with those uh, the people that are looking at those kinds of local and regional flows around neoliberalism and securitization practices and networks, et cetera. And so I'm trying to show that uh, bringing protest into that enriches uh, what we're seeing and shows us things we might not have noticed before. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Schwedler. These are all my questions. And this has been a very inter interesting conversation. And lastly, I would just like to ask whether there is anything that you want to add before we close off. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation and I really appreciate your careful reading of the book. And you've actually mentioned something uh, twice today in our conversation that was something I'd like to end with, which is it's intended as a book to have broad theoretical reach beyond the case of Jordan, beyond the Middle East. And I'm really hoping that people take up the invitation to think about these issues in other contexts and see what new things we see. I'm watching protests in Iran right now 
and I have all my questions in mind, but I don't have the answers to them. Are these places people normally protest? Are there routines for protest? Are certain spaces repressed more harshly than other places for protest? And so I'm hoping that people can take up some of the, find something helpful and interesting in this and take it up. And I think we'd all learn a lot more. And I certainly would be able to refine my own work when I'm going to be more in dialogue. Uh, I am working on a, a comparative project uh, as an, in an article form that is going to look at like Istiklal in in uh, Istanbul, Tahrir in Cairo, um, Mexico City, uh, Buenos Aires, and a number of locations where there are protests and try to think comparatively about these. But because I don't have that kind of in-depth knowledge of these places the way I do of Jordan, sort of years of watching protests, I'm hoping that people that do have that knowledge will you know, welcome the dialogue and that we can all think together about these issues. It would be really interesting to hear what comes out from that project as well. Actually, I wanted to add before we say goodbye as well uh, about your future projects or projects that you are currently working on. Would you like to say something about those? Well, in addition to the com- comparative article I mentioned, I'm considering doing, I'm, I'm just researching this now with the research assistant, um, looking at gender dimensions of protest in space. And I noticed in my work, um, there's one protest where the women, uh, day wage labor movement, they come up with this idea of having an overnight protest in downtown Amman. And the women outnumber the men at the protest, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and yet some locals come in with tents to put up tents so that the women can have shelter overnight. So it's kind of funny that women are protesting and they're being more aggressive and innovative and contentious in what they're doing. And yet the men have to swoop in and have some kind of protection for them. The Islamist protests that are thousands in the downtown area always have a separate area for women that's carefully guarded so men can't access it. And then when they're in the protest, it's a cordoned off area that moves through the protest with guards around them so that they're They can protest, but they're protected. So there's a lot in feminist political geography that I think is relevant to me uh, to these issues. So I'm also thinking about those kinds of issues. And that might, if I, depending on what I discover, that might be another spin-off uh, project based on this. It's connected, but, but substantially different. So those are the two projects that I really have on my plate right now. Well, I'm looking forward to read all of them in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 